I Am The Fly is a podcast about a brief time in the late 20th century, when a cassette tape ran 90 minutes but held infinite promise, when drugs went suburban and parents didn't helicopter, when stars walked among us but you couldn't even prove it. I Am The Fly, David Klein, guiding you through the pre-digital past on a pair of warped wings. In this episode, I fly high with Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, smoke a joint with a guy who looks like John Wayne Gacy, and lose my virginity to someone else. At 15, I'm too old for sleepaway camp, so it's on to the teen tour circuit. Hell, the parents have come to appreciate having me and my brother out of their hair for a few weeks in a row. And it's not exactly painful. We visit the Badlands and Mount Rushmore and Disneyland, and I attain some experience with what Dad calls heavy petting. The following summer, two-thirds into a three-week bicycle tour of Massachusetts, I and another kid are late in arriving at the appointed spot in the Boston subway station. Both of us have attitudes and are not well-loved. And so the group leader, a woman in her early 20s, puts it up to the other kids to decide whether we should be kicked off the trip. The next morning, I'm on a bus back home to Five Sherwood, only the parents are not at home. They are in Ithaca, New York, at Dad's alma mater, Cornell, attending some seminars and socializing with fellow liberal thinkers. There's stuff for kids to do, too, so it's not a bad fallback position. The folks arranged for me to take a flight from Newark to Binghamton, New York. Someone will be there to pick me up. Glimpses of leather, denim, glossy hair, and tinted shades, snatched from over the shoulder of the stocky nun ahead of me, tell me I'm trailing a rock and roll band and any rock band worth their salt in 1978 is headed where I'm headed, to the smoking section. My habit is still more cheap thrill than chain smoke on the tarmac at this point, but this is my first solo flight, and I'm going to do it in style. As I approach my seat, I get a good look. It's TP and the H's. my soul, and my gut. Most of the music I'm excited about these days is cerebral and English. Elvis Costello, Brian Eno, Peter Gabriel, and especially The Clash, who are not cerebral so much as extremely political. TP requires less mental effort. His songs are never shallow or cliched like the corporate rock of the moment, and you can easily read yourself into them. But Petty isn't trying to make you think exactly, or attempting to shake up society. The Heartbreakers drummer, Stan Lynch, is seated directly across the aisle from me, close enough to touch. He is long and lean, like Prince Valiant's more dangerous cousin from the North. There's an ease in his comportment, in his not freezing out the kid with the Jeff Beck t-shirt and horizontal mop of hair reacting to him with rapturous recognition. Stan even gives the kid a quick nod. Next to Stan, in the window seat, is Ron Blair, the bass player who will, a few albums from now, quit the Heartbreakers and open a bikini shop. Mike Campbell, 
whose majestic leads send me into the same stratosphere as David Gilmore's or Jerry Garcia's, is behind them with Benmont Tench, whose cool but never icy keyboard textures provide a critical component of the Heartbreaker's sound. Farther back in the very last row is Tom. Mirrored shades, jean jacket, lighting up. They all look like stars. White light got a scar in the sky Pull out of silver Night was all cloudy with dreams Wind made me shiver Black and yellow pools of light WNEW-FM This is the place where rock lives. 1027-WNEW-FM plays American Girl and Breakdown and listen to her heart. But thanks to my station of choice, Pix 102. I'm hip to Tom's obscurities, like I Don't Know What to Say to You, a sprightly B-side mixing Mike Campbell's nimble Travis picking with Petty's Dylanish doggerel. For my money, to borrow a phrase currently associated with The Clash, PIX is the only station that matters. On PIX, you'll hear a set that segues from Sam the Sham and the Pharaohs to Magazine to The Stones to Sam and Dave. Tom Petty songs play side by side with The Specials and The Cure instead of Steve Miller and Bob Seger. They sound much better that way. According to Warren Zanes's Petty the Biography, Halfway through the tour, Petty had been ruminating on a previous conversation with Bruce Springsteen. Bruce told Tom he had sworn off doing opening slots and decided only to play for audiences who were there to see him. Tom and his band have suffered through a comical run of mismatched bills of late. From Meatloaf to Bebop Deluxe to Patti Smith. Tonight they're paired with Journey. And four days ago, during a performance at Miami's High Life Fronton, an electrical charge surged from Petty's mic and knocked him unconscious. A quick glance back at him in his don't-talk-to-me shades, too alone to be proud, convinces me not to go back there for a handshake. A stewardess, not yet a flight attendant, it's still the 70s, appears, and Stan orders a scotch and a coffee. Just think of it, a scotch and a coffee. The perfect meal. And at noon, no less. I have never seen anyone do anything half as cool. Stan's the kid in the band, the lone extrovert in a tribe of introverts, according to the Zanes book. He's a galvanizing force, but he's blunt and unapologetic, and has a way of getting under people's skin. What am I doing in this band? I met Stan Lynch on the corner of 13th uh, and University Avenue in Gainesville, Florida, on his 16th, yes. 16th birthday, on his knees, and on... Um, don't, no, don't, don't say anything uh, Omit a few details. Why did we end up in the same band together, man? I don't know. Because uh, all the good drummers weren't available. He's come to blows with his seatmate, and recently, when Tom asked him for his opinion on the proposed cover image for You're Gonna Get It, Stan said he really didn't care.
That, um, um, you know, in the chorus, I'm talking about how the title phrase is made indelible by the way it's echoed distantly. I mistakenly believe it results from some kind of magical effects pedal, when actually it's a human being singing it, and not just any human being. Stan himself sings those italicized I need to knows. He doesn't correct me though, or look bored or put upon. When I pause to take a breath, he says something like, yeah, it's a really cool song. One of his best yet. Glad you dig it. The middle section of his offhand description takes me closer to the rock group dynamic than anything I've ever read in Circus Magazine. If I Need to Know is one of Tom's best, some other songs must have been inferior in Stan's eyes, which means that just because you're in a band doesn't mean you love everything you do. I feel closer to Stan now, for he and I and Petty fans worldwide are all united in the waiting and watching to see what Tom comes up with next. Maybe the next single will be one of his best yet. Sure seems like he's on a roll. Stan Lynch and I are now pretty much like any pair of non-hostile people near each other on a plane who don't mind having a casual chat. It's a 45-minute flight, he's got his scotch and coffee, so why not? He asks me where I'm heading, and I tell him Cornell University in Ithaca, conveniently leaving out the specifics. You don't want to engage in that sort of mundane talk with a rock star. He says they're playing Detroit's Cobo Hall tonight, and from there they go to New York. Can you make it down? You could come backstage, say hi. Oh man, that would be wild, I say, wondering how it might even be possible. Soon the plane starts to make its descent into Binghamton Airport, and I manage to pose a surprisingly solid, rock-critic-worthy question before this magic moment ends. So, I mean, how do you feel about it being, you know, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, with him being the star of the show? Do you ever wish it was you? You have to have a focus, he says. Know what I mean? It can't be five guys in the spotlight. It just doesn't work. I leave it there. Let's not blow this brag-worthy episode. We touch ground, and Stan tells me to have fun in Ithaca and to try to make it to the Palladium show on Friday. Stan and I shake in the accepted 1970s style among white guys with long hair. The hippie handshake, which is done overhand, like you're both gripping the same subway pole. And we part. Stan for fabled Cobo Hall, the venue where Bob Seger's live bullet was recorded and which seats 12,000. Me for Mary Donlin Hall, a dormitory on Cornell's North Campus, capacity 450. You had to be having sex to be cool. At the end of the decade, that was the thinking among high school boys, a view propagated by older brothers, peer pressure, and mainstream entertainment. Look at Otter in Animal House, the biggest movie of 1978. He's a frat boy, slickly handsome and disingenuous, who fucks anything that moves and is presented unironically as the most fulfilled among his cohort of fun-loving drunks. The issue here is not whether we broke a few rules or took a few liberties with our female party guests. We did. His pal Boone, played by Peter Rygert, is a more complex guy whose beautiful girlfriend, Karen Allen, gives him headaches. As a 17-year-old virgin, I viewed Pinto, the sincere but naive doofus played by Tom Hulse, as the most relatable. I also knew in my heart and from experience that the otters of the world got the girls. There was a popular t-shirt, at least in the back of magazines I read, like National Lampoon, that showed what looked like a man's face and profile that read, What's on a man's mind? 
You looked closer and saw his profile traced out the contours of a naked woman's body. That notion was common, that the most normal thing you can do as a young male is to think about sex all the time. Dad's recollections of college pretty much squared with the goings-on depicted in Animal House. Jewish fraternity life at Cornell had been a hanky-panky fest, pure and simple. Remembering an attractive gal with whom he'd once dallied, Dad would lower his voice and confide in an unmistakable tone of adolescent naughtiness. She was really stacked. Blowjobs, he reported, were considered fifth base, something only done by really serious couples making marriage plans. The term for an unattractive girl among his frat brothers was a face crash. The thing was, he seemed to warm to these moments as much as we did. When employing this conspiratorial whisper, or expressing his unabashed fixation on Zoftig actresses like Susan Sarandon and Valerie Perrine, Dad was at his most open and approachable, revealing his childhood nickname for his younger brother Arthur, Farturo, or sharing a smutty joke, punchline, Ivan, release the suction. Dad was almost like a fellow kid. Implicit in Dad's tales of wild times at I Felt a Thigh was that premarital sex was no big deal and that one would be remiss in not joining a fraternity. My brother, who was having lots of sex, insisted the time was a wasting. In defiance of my parents' wishes and the implications of a prep school education, Johnny had rebuffed his college acceptances at UVM, Bucknell, and several other good schools he hadn't bothered to visit. Instead, he took an apartment in the then seedy town of Edgewater, New Jersey, and got a job at the local Purex soap factory. The boy who'd won national awards for poetry and nearly aced his English SAT pursued his rock dreams instead, playing bass in a New York-based band called The Method. The night I rounded up a bunch of high school friends to go see The Method play at CBGB took me to unimagined heights of brother awe. Uncle Mike agreed that amazement was the appropriate response, calling Johnny's appearance at the legendary Bowery birthplace of New York punk the furthest evolutionary advance anyone has made in our family, while also declaring, Patti Smith and Devo are as good as Dylan and the Beatles in their primes, in a concurrent letter. I had a girlfriend during my junior year, a gregarious, conscientious girl with lots of extracurricular interests. Jill did not party and was not part of my social circle. So what was I doing with her? She was good company. She had pillowy lips. It felt empowering to make someone's heart go flippity-flop. On weekday evenings, we'd get together at her well-appointed home in Englewood, talk about nothing consequential, and make out and drink hot chocolate. Mom was always within earshot. You mean you haven't touched her tits yet? The hell is your problem? Was Johnny's frequent harangue. Thus, the summer of 1979, one year after flying high with Stan Lynch and Tom Petty, I returned to Mary Donlin Hall, this time as a junior counselor, with wheels. Camel is a horse designed by a committee, so they say, and the selection of my beige rabbit diesel was a committee decision all the way. Dad was adamant that I choose a vehicle that got exceptional mileage. We were in the midst of another gas crisis, after all. 
So not just a rabbit, which had very respectable numbers, but a diesel model whose numbers were even better. Never mind the practicality of owning a diesel vehicle in a gasoline world, or diesel engines' vulnerability to the sub-freezing temperatures that marked winters in the Northeast. It's the economy, stupid. The dealership in Englewood only carried the diesel model in yellow, white, red, and beige. Yellow was out because it was yellow. As was red, which reminded me too much of my zits. Mom said never get a white car. They're too hard to keep clean. So beige it was. Complaints aside, I was stoked. My cassette tapes blared through a pair of Oratone 5C Super Sound Cube speakers, which Johnny assured me were the preferred mix-down monitors in New York recording studios because of their flat, full-range response. They were not designed with cars in mind, so I had them installed on the panel behind the back seat when they didn't fit inside the doors. On the day of my departure, I packed my stereo and a crate of records because three weeks of playing my cassettes on a cheap portable tape player was intolerable. Actually, calling it a stereo is a misnomer. Mom said lugging my whole system up there was ridiculous. Just bring one speaker, she said. You're in this tiny little room. One'll be plenty. I complied with his insane request out of the purest naivete. I was not completely clear on what the difference would be with one speaker, and I only learned that lesson when I got back home, queued up television's marquee moon, and heard a whirlwind of snarling guitar that had not been there before. So that was stereo. Wiping noses, putting on band-aids, rolling inflatable balls gently for four-year-olds to kick. This was my day, and it was actually fairly exhausting. In the evening, I was happy enough to walk through a leafy section of campus and smoke a dube before repairing to my room to spin some of my current faves. Principally Neil Young's Rust Never Sleeps, Graham Parker squeezing out sparks. And that television record. I kept my mini fridge stocked with Molson Golden Ale purchased from a small market in an adjacent building that also housed a nondescript bar. College Town, a mile or so away, had plenty of real bars, and I could sometimes pass for 18, but I had no fake ID. Mostly what I lacked was the swagger to waltz in like I owned the place, something wise older brothers and others in the know stressed as crucial to your success in passing. I figured the little bar was my best, least fraught bet. Saturday was the quiet day. The dorms were vacated on Moss, and new families didn't begin arriving until the next day. You practically had the whole big, boring women's dormitory to yourself. On the second Saturday of my three-week assignment, I was ready for the lull, and for a proper grown-up quaff. Foreigner was on the jukebox inside the little pub with no name, and a half dozen or so patrons were spread around the wooden bar, drinking beer in iced mugs and working at little baskets of popcorn. The students were mostly gone, so the clientele seemed to be an assortment of locals and people brought in by happenstance. As I was about to order, 
a roly-poly middle-aged guy named Harold offered to buy me a beer. Harold looked like John Wayne Gacy, which is to say stocky, balding, paunchy, and innocuous. This was before you automatically figured the seemingly average Joe on the stool next to you buying you a couple of beers harbored evil designs. I dug the spontaneity of making conversation with some garrulous square guy from middle America. That type almost counted as exotic in my world. After a few rounds, we left the bar and walked to a secluded spot because I brought a joint with me. He didn't smoke, but he didn't mind if I did. In the course of it, Harold said he was a law enforcement agent. I panicked, of course, but he said not to worry. He had no intention of busting me. He was in Ithaca for an animal control conference because one of the things Harold did was apprehend escaped animals. He seemed to do a lot of things. The following Thursday, I'm back at the no-name pub. No Harold, which is kind of good. Remembering me, the bartender serves up a pint of Michelob in a frosted glass tanker just as before. As I take my first contented sip, over the speakers comes the logical song, and my head begins to nod reflexively. Not too much, though, because it isn't cool to like Super Tramp too much. But right now, with that cold splash of lager and the first Marlboro drag, man, they sound fantastic. I'm full-on head-bopping now, fully giving myself over to the tramp. Who gives a shit? I'm in Ithaca, and nobody knows who I am. When I open my eyes, she's appraising me. She is... Hmm. What is she? Not a girl. Older than that. And not polished. Not a student. Not a teacher. Got a been-around-the-block-a-few-times look to her. Hmm. You really like this song, huh? Her voice is low southern honey. Yeah, they really sound like the Beatles in a way. The melody and the vocals. I don't love the band that much, really, but this is undeniably catchy. This is the Beatles? No, it's Supertramp. Oh, I see. Supertramp, huh? Yeah, they're an English band. Their album's getting a lot of airplay. I like the Beatles, she says. But I'm not really up on, you know, the latest thing. This would ordinarily be a major turnoff. A month ago, at an end-of-school party, Katie Smethurst said she loved David Gilmour's solo albums, and I rather coldly pointed out, like a dick, that David Gilmour had only made one solo album. Well, this time, I am more than willing to overlook this lack of worldliness. I like how she listens intently as I describe my counselor job, and I proceed without fear that she'll find me dull or uncool. As for her own circumstances, she's vague. When I ask her what she's doing in Ithaca, she says, just passing through. So where'd you start off from then? Where am I from, you mean? Tennessee. Tennessee? Yes, sir. Johnson City. Tennessee born and bred. You may not believe it, but I was actually born in the South myself. Get out of town. Nope, I was. Fort Campbell, Kentucky. My dad was in the Army. Deciding to eschew telling the Hendrix story, because if she's never heard of Jimmy, we might actually have a problem. I add unnecessarily. That's where I was born. Well, well, well she says, extending her hand. A Kentucky boy. It's a pleasure to meet you. I'm Luvina. Her hand is warm and strong and lightly calloused. She keeps it there just long enough to make her interest clear. 
Once we're into our second round, I'm ready. If it's cool with you, we can go up to my dorm room and listen to some music. I have something to play for you. Something you'll like. Are you willing to guarantee it? I am. I guarantee it. Well, how can a girl refuse such a kindly offer as that? As we ride the elevator to my fifth floor dorm room, I'm relieved not to run into any of my counselor colleagues in our travels. The sordidness of the situation, of gangly teenage me and a townie a good decade older, must be obvious to anyone with eyes. A few years ago, during a two-month teen tour across the country, I racked up some pretty extensive fooling around experience, so I know what it's like to have an assertive girl leverage your eager hand for her own pleasure. But during junior year, I've been restricted to Jill and our regiment of athletic French kissing, and now my head is spinning from the beer and the horniness, my heart thumping at the thrill of the moment having finally arrived. Patting the key in my front pocket steadies me. My beat-up copy of Flattened Scruggs with the Foggy Bottom Boys has Dad's name rubber-stamped on the back cover and a crude masking tape repair along the spine. Released in 1960 on the Harmony label, the cover is a studio shot of Lester and Earl posing against a background of blue-gray, wearing matching white jackets, white cowboy hats, and bright red bolo ties. Lester has a craggy John Wayne visage and a benign grin. Earl's hair is nearly black, and he has some of that corn-fed look about the jaw. The needle drops, and spangles burble up from stylus to my one speaker in resplendent mono, just as it was meant to be. Luvina brightens at the sound of banjo, and I fetch a Molson from my mini-fridge. Popping the top off with the bottle opener built into the cinder block wall, an odd perk to be sure, I take a sip on my way to the bed, where she's slouched against a pillow recliner. We can share this one. I only have two left. We start to kiss, and she starts undoing my belt. Hang on, I say. I don't have any protection. Oh, that's okay, sugar, she says, climbing on top of me. What do you mean? Oh, you're on the pill? Nope, she says. Pregnant. This revelation does not dent my ardor even slightly. Don't force it now. Just, just... That's right. That's right. By track four, we're already in afterglow. I am, anyway. And Luvina's feeling pretty all right herself crooning along with gusto to a song she recognizes from a Charlie Pride album. When I rise to turn the record over, Luvina begins flipping through a sketchbook filled with my crazy acid-inspired drawings. She asks for a pen, and I give her a purple felt-tip marker and open another beer. I skip the first track on side two, let those brown eyes smile at me, and go straight for the manic Earl's breakdown before rejoining Luvina, who nods along as she sketches a landscape of snow-capped mountains and a winding river. In the foreground is a tree with a hole in its trunk. She signs her name in perfect, school-taught cursive, 
with a swooping, almost pompous B to begin her last name. Then she starts putting her things on, unhurriedly and without self-consciousness. I'm starting to fade, sockless, pantless, and satisfied, when I hear the doorknob turn. Good night, darling, she whispers in a low and throaty tone. Maybe I'll see you at the pub. It never happened. But in December, Harold wrote to say he would be in the tri-state area around the holidays and wanted to get together. I couldn't see the harm, not exactly anyway, but just as a precaution I enlisted my brother to come with me. Johnny and I met Harold at Ziggy's, just across the George Washington Bridge in Fort Lee, where they didn't check ID, and he proceeded to get us unrelentingly drunk on Jägermeister and schooners of Weissbeer. He even brought us a joint to smoke, apprehended from a suspect of some kind. After last call, we walked him to his car, and he went to the back and opened the hatch of his station wagon. Aha! Here's where he shows us the corpse of the suspect whose joint we just smoked. Instead, he's got a bounty of ornately wrapped presents back there, filling the trunk almost to overflowing. I finally get it. Santa Claus is making his Christmas rounds. The next day, once we could think again, Johnny and I retrieved the gifts from the car. Under the bows and ribbons and shiny wrapping were multiple shot glass sets and a liquor decanter in the shape of a vintage automobile for each member of the family. Mine was a 1914 Stutz Bearcat that played Beautiful Dreamer when you turned the spare tire. Those were different times. Next up, Season 2 of I Am The Fly, which explores my life in mid-80s Alphabet City, the rise of MTV, and meetings with celebrities on the cusp of world domination. Thanks for listening.